0: short warning before we start. This episode contains some scary and possibly disturbing content. I have tried to keep the details vague and mild in case it is played in the vicinity of small children, but as it is spooky season, some of the episodes from now until Christmas may feature some darker themes. Concerned parents should listen to the episodes before sharing them with their children. You have been warned. Welcome to Southern Pride Storytime. Today we'll start with a story that's probably a little familiar to most of you. The story of the Lost Colony of Roanoke. In 1585, the Spanish were a dominant force taking over the new world and seeing their ships return to the old world loaded heavily with gold made the English eager to make their own mark on the new continent. They wanted a new colony and they set their sights on the mild climates of what is now known as the Outer Banks of North Carolina. They settled on one of the many islands strung like a strand of pearls along the shore of North Carolina and called the colony Roanoke. It was their second attempt to colonize the Outer Banks. On their first attempt, the British had only thought to bring men and the lack of women and children resulted in an equal lack of permanence. This journey included hope including that of the ship's captain, John White, whose daughter was amongst the colonists, and whose granddaughter, Virginia Dare, was the first English baby born in the New World. Overall, he thought things were looking pretty good and well settled when he left the colony to return to England for supplies. Politics and sea travel being what they were at the time, it was a full three years before Captain White was able to return to the colony, and when he did, he was in for a tragedy fort was still in immaculate shape, except for the fact that it was completely empty. Every member of the blossoming community had vanished. The only sign he found pertaining to the location of the colonists was the word Croatoan, carved into a nearby tree. To this day, the disappearance of the 112 to 121 people is a complete mystery. Some theorize that they were wiped out by local native tribes, but there was no sign of a struggle, and this theory cropped up years after the fact, specifically because there was no evidence to support it. On the contrary, letters from the colonists to family back in England had glowing reports on the friendliness and the hospitality of the local tribes. The more likely theory is that some disaster, like a hurricane or harsh winter, led to the local tribes taking in the settlers and them simply being absorbed into this new culture over time. Either way, the fact of the matter is that we may never know what happened to this entire community of people and John White never got any closure in the case of his missing daughter and granddaughter. In 1710, near Oklahoma, an English ship was carrying a load of German refugees called Palantines to the new colony they had established in the Outer Bank. When the shore was in sight, the refugees began to gather their things in order to move into their new home. Some of these possessions included wealth and treasures that they had hidden from the crew of the ship out of fear of their things being stolen. It turns out they were right to do so. When the shady crew saw the treasure that the German refugees were bringing to the new world with them, they shut their passengers inside of their rooms and one by one stole their goods. They then boarded their lifeboat with the stolen valuables and turned the ship or burned the ship down with the passengers still locked inside their rooms they had gotten away with the theft until they turned around and saw that the flaming ship appeared to be pursuing them. Eventually, the men abandoned even the lifeboats and were never seen again. The locals of Ocracoke and state that the first full moon of every September, you can still see a flaming ship pass through the harbor three times before it vanishes. Also in the early 1700s, a petite woman named Cora arrived in Crisco with her baby. She was an introvert in a time when the antisocial was not seen as a personality type, but a sign that you were up to no good. She built a crude little shelter for herself in the woods, a little way away from the building. She was also never seen without your child, whose father was a mystery to the local community. Had he passed away due to an illness, a military incident, a duel lost at sea, or was he simply never in the picture? The gossip was all abuzz, and with the Salem witch trials so nearby in the rearview mirror, it was only natural for the locals to assume that Cora was a witch. It was said that once she touched a cow and the animal had dried up, and grown sick. A young boy had once mocked her baby and stuck his tongue out at it, only for him to be struck by illness afterwards and nearly die. Cora always seemed to have enough fish to feed herself and her child, even when the fishermen were regularly pulling up empty nets. Normally, a little gossiping and finger pointing like this was as far as the situation would go. After all, stories of witches, voodoo, root doctors, and sorts are a dime a dozen here in the South. But the situation was stirred up further with the arrival of a haggard looking ship called the Susan G. Naturally, the ship itself wasn't the problem, but it carried all the way up in Salem, Massachusetts the appropriately named doctor Eli Blue. Sounds like a Disney character. <laughs> he called himself a witch hunter and a practitioner of white magic, and as he began to mix with the villagers, his attention quickly turned to Cora. According to Captain Blood, all of the town's problems, from storms to sickness, were all Cora's fault. I'm sure you'll be shocked to know that the good captain had a solution for all that. First thing was first, they needed to form an angry mob. Together, the villagers arrested Cora and her baby, and dragged her into town. First, they tied her right ankle to her left wrist, and vice versa. Then, lobbed her into the water. The premise was that if Cora floated, she was a witch, and if she sank, she was innocent. Since the tide was out, and the water was very shallow at the time, naturally, she did not sink. She was simply unable to. Next, Blood grabbed a fistful of Cora's hair and tried to cut it with his knife. When he failed, he stated that her hair was stronger than a wire rope, and apparently this was also proof that Cora was a witch. Finally, Blood took a special bowl he used for hunting witches. He filled the bowl with seawater, water and pricked his finger, dripping a drop of blood into the bowl. He passed it around to each of his crew for them to do the same, and he stirred the concoction, whipping it into a foamy frenzy. As he examined the contents, his face erupted with victory as he confirmed that Cora was a witch. He passed around the bowl for everyone else to view its contents, which apparently contained an image of Cora and the devil. This was the final straw. Cora and her baby were both tied to an oak tree in the middle of town and were surrounded by kindling and dry brush as clouds quickly began to gather in the sky. Blood was just about to light the brush when lightning parted the clouds and struck the tree where Cora and her baby were tied. There was a flash of light, and when it faded, Cora and her baby had vanished, leaving nothing but their ropes behind. Well, their rope and a scar in the old oak tree they had been tied to. The wound had been torn into the tree's flesh by the lightning itself, and it was shaped like four letters C O R A. Southern live oak trees are somewhat unique. Their trunks do most of their growing in the first 70 years of the tree's life. After that, much of the growth happens in the region of the tree's wild and wiggly branches, meaning that carvings of the trunk of the tree after these trees have reached maturity will likely remain with the tree relatively unchanged for the remainder of its long life. And I mean, long. Some live oaks down here are thought to be 300 to 1,000 years old, and stretch their green crowns out like welcoming arms for fairies and folklore. All this to say that the cora tree, or at least the part of it affected by the lightning strike, has remained relatively unchanged in the last 300 or so years. It still stands in the middle of the town; its fabled scars, or fabled scars, still clearly visible. It can even be found on Google Maps, which sounds like a perfect reason to visit the Outer Banks to me. While you're there, check out New Bern to see where Pepsi came from and Beaufort to learn more about Blackbeard. Step into the old burying ground and leave a gift for the Rum Keg Girl. It may not be the most traditional visit to the Outer Banks, but I promise it'll be a memorable one. Thank you so much for tuning in again to Southern Flight Screaming Time, and I hope you enjoyed today's stories and would be interested in checking out some more as the spooky season cruises on. Have an absolutely beautiful and spooky weekend.